Whenever a man sees the realities of war, there are a few things he desires more than peace. Whenever a man sees the realities of war, there are few things that he values more than peace. And yet, peace appears to be something that continually evades the human race. It's been estimated that in the last 4,000 years of history, about 300 of them have been without war. Jesus said that my disciples will be peacemakers. Jesus taught that his disciples would be characterized by their desire and their efforts to bring peace. Now, I'm paraphrasing. Of course, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, but as we've thought about many times in the last few weeks, we understand that Jesus here in the Beatitudes is not issuing a program. He's drawing a portrait. The Beatitudes are not a program that we are to follow in order to qualify as one of Jesus' disciples, rather they're a portrait of what his disciples would look like. Having set their faith in him for salvation and repented of their sins, Jesus so works in a man's life that he begins to characterize the attributes listed here, including peacemaking. So as we think about this verse this morning, There are considerations that arise. Why did Jesus teach that his disciples would be peacemakers? Of all of the characteristics he could have listed, he could have gone on. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other things he could have said instead. Why does Jesus choose to teach, amongst other things, that his disciples would be peacemakers? What is the nature of of the peace that his disciples would seek to bring. And what is the motive? What compels them to do hard things, to seek peace in the face of adversity? There'll be the headings for the sermon this morning. Why, of what nature, and what is the motive? As we go into the verse... I want you to encourage, encourage you to think about just how great an impact you can have for the sake of the gospel by being a peacemaker. All men desire peace. Few really understand where to find it. If you can be a peacemaker, bringing the kind of peace that Jesus teaches about here, centered on the gospel you can have incredible impact for the glory of Christ. And so, why does Jesus teach this characteristic? Why is it that he lists peacemaking as one of the defining attributes of his disciples? And the answer is, of course, the gospel. Every week we've made an appeal to the gospel as the proper way to understand every beatitude. You cannot take this list in isolation. You cannot afford to divorce the Beatitudes from the larger context of the gospel. If you do, you end up with an ethic 
that is insufficient, that cannot stand in and of itself, by no means will it save. Jesus, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, is speaking into a much broader theological context. The broader theological context begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, where we see that the nature of humanity in light of the fall is to be those that wage war. The nature of the human heart in light of Genesis 3 is that we would wage war against one another. From that first murder when Cain rose up in the field and killed his brother. Abel spoke some words to him. He offered a good offering before the Lord. Jealousy was raging in Cain's heart, and so he killed his brother. And from that chapter onwards, we find that the defining characteristic of humanity is in many senses to wage war against one another. So much so that when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, if you have had but a hateful thought in your heart towards somebody else, you are guilty of murder. He's not exaggerating. The same impulse that gives rise to murder is that very impulse that you have indulged in your heart when you have sought to dislike, exhibit hatred towards somebody else. We're all guilty because this is the nature of humanity. One commentator suggested if an alien were to come down to earth and study the human race, And if they were to write a report answering the question, what is the concern of this species, the alien would be forced to conclude their primary occupation is that of making war against one another. The broader theological context into which Jesus speaks is one of sin and depravity that manifests itself in hatred, war-making towards one another. It is also the broader theological context into which Jesus speaks, wherein we have seen that God has provided a solution to this very problem. You see, the greatest problem is not actually that we wage war with one another, but first and foremost that we wage it against God. Genesis 4 comes after Genesis 3. There is a problem that precedes the issue introduced by Cain, And that is the rebellion of humanity against their creator. And as you sin and rebel against him, you are in effect waging war against him, seeking to elevate your own name, bring down his name. And it is a condition that pervades all of humanity. The greatest war that we have ever waged is against God first and foremost. And the solution that God brings that we read of in the pages of Scripture is to send His Son, as Isaiah chapter 9 teaches us, as the Prince of Peace. Who is this Messiah figure? He is not one who wages war, at least not in His first coming. He comes in humility and with grace and with utter meekness so as to die on a cross. He is the Prince of Peace that reconciles us to our Heavenly Father. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Christ is our peace. Notice Paul doesn't even say Christ brings peace, though he does. 
Christ facilitates and makes possible peace with God. That is true. But Paul is so emphatic in Ephesians 2 that he finds cause to say, Paul, Christ is our peace. In the Lord's kindness, that is our text for our sermon this evening. Christ is our peace. You get to hear the same sermon twice in one day. That doesn't mean don't come this evening. Perhaps God in his wisdom wants you to submit your heart twice today to the simple and yet profound reality that Christ is our peace. Sundays aren't intended to be convenient for you. They're intended to conform you to Christ. So come back this evening as we think more about the wonderful reality of the gospel. Christ is our peace. You can speak about the gospel in many different ways. It's a simple message and yet so wonderfully profound, like a a radiant jewel. You can turn the gospel around and see it from so many different angles and understand the wonderful message of salvation that God has given to us. And one, but one angle that you can view the gospel is to understand that it is a message of peace. It is a message of peace to sinners who have made war against their Creator, and He has responded justly by saying, now my wrath rests upon you. That is the war, the picture that we have to understand if we are to embrace the fact that Christ is our peace, that the gospel is the only hope by which we might become peacemakers. The broader theological context into which Jesus speaks when he says blessed are the peacemakers is one where we understand that his disciples have first and foremost been reconciled to God, have received peace. You cannot be a peacemaker until you have received peace. You can't be the kind of peacemaker of which Jesus speaks here until you are the beneficiaries of the peace that was accomplished at the cross of Christ. Some years ago I was in Israel, and if you've ever been there, you'll know just how desperate a land it is, desiring, yearning, crying out for peace. If you spend any time in that country, somebody somewhere along the way will say to you, pray for Israel. People say it all the time, wherever you go, and as you unpack what they mean, they're asking that you would pray for peace in that land. You walk around the old city, there are policemen armed on every corner. There's peace, but it's not real. Take them away and the peace wouldn't last very long. And the tragedy is that there is peace available to them, the kind of peace that they genuinely desire. A peace that is ongoing and everlasting and genuine and seated and emanating from the heart if they would but embrace Christ. And it's not only true of the nation of Israel, but of all of the nations. There will be no peace until the nations acknowledge Christ as their king. And it is true for you this day. Understand there will be no lasting peace in your life, nor can you be a peacemaker until you've embraced Christ, who is our peace. 
when you have embraced the gospel of His salvation that He offers freely to all who would believe, then and only then can you become a peacemaker. As you embrace the peace that the gospel brings, making peace between you and God, as you truly embrace that peace, it begins to overflow out of you. It begins to emanate from you towards those around you. That's how it is you become a peacemaker. The gospel has so gripped your heart. The gospel of peace has so overtaken your mind and your heart that now... The peace that it brings is issuing forth from your life to those around you. That is how you can be a peacemaker. Now with that, we can ask, what is the nature of the peace? It's grounded in the gospel. It comes from an understanding of the peace that Christ brings between us and God. But what is the nature of the peace that we, his disciples, are are to bring? Perhaps you think that's an easy question to answer. We all know what peace is and we have an intuitive understanding. Just turn over very briefly to chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. Just to see that this isn't as straightforward as you might think, look at chapter 10 of this gospel and verse 34, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, Jesus says, but a sword. Now there's a verse that will throw a wrench in your sermon prep. Jesus, which is it? Are we to be peacemakers or are we not? It simply means we have to nuance our understanding of the peace of which Jesus is speaking in Matthew 5. Jesus is not teaching that his disciples will avoid confrontation. Jesus is not speaking about a peace that comes from avoiding confrontation. That's a false peace. Please understand, confrontation ought to be healthy. Confrontation is often the mechanism that we depend upon to get to where we need to be in terms of unity. I anticipate there will be confrontation as we do life together The Bible teaches of the necessity of confrontation, especially as a brother or sister pursues sin. It's healthy and right that we would confront him or her as a means towards holiness, sanctification in their life, and unity in the body. Confrontation should be a healthy thing. Christ is not speaking about peace at all costs. And you can look down just one verse, see the very next beatitude, and notice Christ promises his disciples will be persecuted. So there's an absence of peace in their life. There is violence being wrought upon them because of their righteousness. 
which means the peace of which he's speaking in verse 9 is not a peace at all costs. We must not compromise the message of the gospel in order to maintain peace in our lives. To understand more fully the kind of peace of which Jesus is speaking, I actually want to turn forward in our Bibles, not this week to an Old Testament text, but forward to the letter of James and specifically chapter 3. Turn with me briefly to James chapter 3. And the reason why this is a valid cross-reference is twofold. First of all, James is the first letter written in our New Testament. It falls very far into the New Testament, but chronologically, this is the oldest New Testament book, the first letter written to those who are following Jesus. He is now ascended into heaven, and James is instructing the followers of Jesus, what it means at a very practical level to live out their lives in light of the teaching they'd received from their Savior. And so following on from that, another characteristic we can note of this letter is that James is full of allusions and echoes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing, one day we'll work through this as a church together and I anticipate that the sermons that we hear in the book of James will sound very like Sermon on the Mount sermons, because James is leaning especially on Jesus' teaching as found in Matthew 5 through 7. In many ways, he's amplifying for these believers, carried along by the Spirit of God, what it means to obey the Sermon on the Mount. So that being noted, look at James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder and every vile practice. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What quarrels, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James teaches that an absence of peace stems from the selfish ambition that we foster in our heart. Just consider that. The absence of peace relationally with one another does not begin, James teaches us, with a problem in the other person. 
He says it starts with selfish ambition in your heart. And so we might say the kind of, Je- the kind of peace that Jesus is advocating for in his disciples is the kind that is waging war on the lusts of the flesh. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he is teaching that his disciples will be those who are waging war. They are peacemakers. How? By waging war on the lusts and the selfish ambitions and the passions that exist within your heart. You are fighting against them and silencing them and refusing to allow them to rise up within you and give voice in your relationships. That is how you pursue peacemaking. You refuse the pride that persists within you to have any voice in your life. You are rather disciplined to silence these passions the moment that you are aware of them. The moment that you have the self-awareness to see there is a lust that is driving me, a selfish ambition that is driving me in this interaction, in this relationship, you silence it. You do not indulge it. You do not give it a second by which it can flourish in your heart because that is the cause of the absence of peace. To be a peacemaker is to wage war on the passions that exist within you. As you deny yourself, as you deny the selfish ambitions, the jealousy, the pride, the lusts that sit within your heart as you are determined to wage war against them, you become a peacemaker. Everything is put in its proper perspective. You no longer have any fight to fight with anyone because you've humbled yourself. You've adopted a posture of meekness and humility. Your priority is that Christ would be honored in your relationships and you no longer care for your own pride. And so what happens is you're disciplined to silence the selfish ambition that exists within as you are disciplined in this way. In a passive manner, you become a peacemaker. Passive in the sense that you become one who turns the other cheek. Remember, I said the Beatitudes are like a table of contents. And they introduce for us many pertinent themes that will come up again and again and again in the sermon, and it's no accident that Jesus says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, and just a few verses later, he says, my disciples will be those that turn the other cheek. You're a peacemaker in a passive sense. When you're wronged, you do not seek to retaliate. You don't have to have the last word. You don't have to come out on top of this interaction. Quite the opposite you turn the other cheek and say, wrong me again. If Christ would be honored in my life, wrong me a second time. And you become a peacemaker in an active sense. Again, Jesus returns to this idea later on in the sermon. He says, if you are at the altar of worship and there you recognize that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your offering. This is so urgent that you stop worship. Leave your offering and go and be reconciled to him. Make it right before you come before God. That's how important this is. And notice Jesus said it's if your brother has something against you. Not to mention when you have something against your brother, if you know they are bothered by you, you seek them out. You initiate. You be the peacemaker. Leave your offering and go and make peace. As far as it is possible, be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 12. As you seize hold of the gospel and in the grace that God supplies, you wage war on the sinful, selfish ambitions that reside within your heart. You become a peacemaker, turning the other cheek, seeking reconciliation with your brother. And it may even be in due course, in a Christ-like manner, You become a mediator. You stand between two brothers who need to make peace. Not only that you would restrict the exercise of this characteristic to your own relationships, but in time the Lord may even provide opportunity that you would stand in between those who are not striving for unity and you would be the one that brings peace. How profound your impact could be for the sake of the gospel if you were a peacemaker. How outstanding would be the fame of Christ in your life if you were a peacemaker. I learned of a marriage many years ago in the context of a local church. Her husband was not a believer The wife loved the Lord. Their marriage was terrible. He would not come for counsel, but the wife was readily submitting to the leadership of the elders. So the pastor said to her, your role in this marriage is not primarily to fix him. That's not your job. Your job is to search your heart, to ask God to open up your eyes to the selfish ambition that is within you. You love the Lord, but you're not perfect. There is selfish ambition in there somewhere. Identify it and make war on it. In God's kindness, As she sought to be a peacemaker, her husband was one to Christ. They have a healthy marriage today. As a peacemaker, you can have incredible impact for the cause of Christ. Again, Jesus is teaching here not a program, but a portrait. This is who his disciples are. Now, with that being said, we understand none of us are here this morning having arrived. None of us are where we want to be, and I trust you found the Beatitudes convicting, 
So there is wisdom in asking, having put our faith in Christ for salvation, what can I do to progress? How can I grow as a peacemaker? Again, you grow as a peacemaker not by avoiding conflict. You grow as a peacemaker not by becoming more skilled in arguments. You grow as a peacemaker not by fixing other people's problems. You grow as a peacemaker by waging war on your selfish ambitions. Very practically, how do you advance in that way? You live your life in this book. Live your life in this book. Live your life in the church and spend your hours in prayer. Very specifically, let me encourage you this morning to be in prayer for your enemies, for those that have issue with you. When things aren't right, you pray. This is exactly what Jesus teaches us in this sermon. Pray for your enemies. When difficulties arise relationally in your life, you should run to prayer and you pray blessing upon blessing on those that are against you. You pray blessing upon blessing on those who are against you. And watch your heart grow in love for them. And you become, by God's grace, a peacemaker. My prayer is that Bethany would be full of peacemakers. I pray this morning in the pastoral prayer, we have many new members coming in in this season of ministry. The church is growing. Church growth counts for very little if we're not unified. As we seek to live our lives with one another, not existing at a distance, not avoiding conflict, being transparent and vulnerable with one another, there'll be difficulties. There will because we're all sinners and we all bring problems to the table. This is not a perfect church. But Christ expects that we be peacemakers. And understand that the hard work is done now. The preparatory work is done now. Don't be reactionary in your Christianity. In the good seasons, when we're celebrating all that the Lord is doing here, live your life in this book. Live your life in the church. Spend your hours in prayer. Pray and pray that the Lord would bless this church with unity so that when the troubles come, it may be said of us that we are peacemakers. Now, what is the motivation for this? As you think about the enormous responsibility, the task that it is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, it is not without motivation. 
As with all of the Beatitudes, there is a twofold blessing, one in the here and now and one in the days to come. Jesus says, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They flourish, they're joyful, they're happy. Why? I can only think that the peacemakers are flourishing because they are imitating the very action of God towards them in the gospel. If you think back, to when we thought through verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Then we ask the question, why is there a blessing to be found in showing mercy? And the answer that I offered was that in showing mercy, we are imitating God as He has been merciful to us. We imitate by being merciful to others. And there is a special type of communion that we enjoy with our Heavenly Father as we imitate Him. In the same way, our gospel is a gospel of peace. Christ is our peace. We have been reconciled to our heavenly Father. He has taken the initiative so as to make peace with us. And now, as we have the privilege of being peacemakers, in a very real way, we get to imitate our heavenly Father. Not that our peacemaking brings salvation. It is not the sum total of the gospel. We have to communicate the gospel message to the lost. But we can portray something of the character of our Heavenly Father as we seek to be peacemakers, and therein a blessing is to be found. We will be joy-filled undoubtedly as we align our steps and our hearts with the very steps and heart of our loving Heavenly Father. There is a blessing in the here and now which should drive us to be peacemakers. Additionally, there is a future-oriented reward. Second half of the verse, for because they shall be called sons of God. The verb there is rendered in a passive voice, they shall be called. We refer to this as a divine passive meaning. Most likely, Jesus has in mind that God will be the one doing the calling. It is God that will proclaim on the final day of salvation history, these are my sons, my daughters, as a direct outworking of their peacemaking which in turn is founded on their faith in Christ. Notice Jesus doesn't say they shall be called children of God. The distinction is subtle and yet very important. Children of God would bring into view and put a slight emphasis on the relationship that exists between our Heavenly Father and us. Sonship puts the emphasis on the on the notion of us being heirs. We are in relationship with God, but as sons, the emphasis are, is that we are His heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And so the reward of being a peacemaker who has set their faith in Christ, grasp the gospel of peace, and from there, there is peace outworking itself, overflowing from our hearts to our relationships. The heavenly reward that will one day come is that God Himself will pronounce us to be worthy heirs. All of the benefits that come with being an heir, 
an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, unfaded, undefiled, everlasting. The kind of inheritance that we read of in chapters like Isaiah 61, meditate on those words and allow them to be the motivation for you, Christian, to do hard things, namely make peace when it is called for. The situations will not be easy and we have this natural tendency to shy away from hard things, not least those that involve conflict, especially in the church. You see, the the easiest thing to do as conflict arises is to choose to sit somewhere else on a Sunday morning. You're all creatures of habit. I know where you all sit. And then one Sunday, you're somewhere else. And I would encourage it simply because you might meet someone new, but don't ever let it be the the cause of that to be that you're avoiding a necessary interaction where peace has to be sought. It's hard. So what will be your motivation to fulfill your membership in this church in such a manner that you are striving for unity. That as a daily practice, you are killing the selfish ambition that exists within you. What will be your motivation? It is the last day. You bring into view the last day of salvation history and the voice that you will hear from God when He says, This is my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Because they clung to Christ, they put their faith in Him, and they gave their efforts and their energies to laboring for unity in the local church. Blessed is my son this day. And you see the progression. Look with me at the progression of thought in these Beatitudes. I've pointed out how in the first half of the verse, there is a theological argument being constructed by Christ. Look at the second half of the verse, picking up from verse 7. His disciples shall receive mercy. They won't on the last day face God's wrath. More than that, in verse 8, they will see God. Not just be the recipients of mercy, more than that, my disciples shall see God. And oh, the glory of verse 9, more than that, I can't stop there, there is more to be said. Jesus can't stop at simply seeing God. He pronounces the incredible last day blessing that one day we shall hear God himself proclaim that we are his heirs. And so as you grasp hold of that argument, that reality, and as God by his grace hides it in your heart, may it be a driving motivation to be a peacemaker, laboring in all of your relationships, in your marriage and in your friendships and in the local church, to be one who brings a gospel-centered peace that Christ may be glorified and you would be called a son of God. Let's pray to close.
Father, we give you thanks for this teaching of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We praise you for this incredible truth. We give you thanks for the gospel of peace, the gospel of our salvation. We praise you that Christ is our peace. We have been reconciled to you. We are no longer your enemies. We have been reconciled to you. We praise you for the gospel of peace. That is our foundation as we grasp hold of that reality Sunday by Sunday, day after day. The peace that we have received overflows from our hearts. We can't contain it because it is so great. We can't keep it in nor hide it because it is so marvelous. And so we become peacemakers. God, may we be peacemakers. Give us the courage to not avoid necessary confrontation. Give us the wisdom to know how to pursue peace. Father, as we cling to Christ, may we wage war on the selfish ambition that exists within our hearts. You know it all. You know it intimately. You know every detail of the passions that are within us that do not honor you. May we wage war against those ambitions. And in so doing, would you render for your glory a church of peacemakers? May we be passive in our peacemaking, turning the other cheek. May we be active in our peacemaking, reconciling with our brother, laying down our offering at the altar with the utmost urgency to make things right, even being mediators between others. All the while, help us to keep in view the great and glorious reward that is promised by Christ for being obedient, a flourishing today simply through imitating you, a joy that comes about today just by imitating your peacemaking and a wonderful reward on the last day. Oh, to hear you say, my son, my daughter, my heir, step into your eternal reward. Give us a glorious vision of that day. And by your grace, drive us forward as peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen.